0: Welcome, Coach. Thank you. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to start by asking you how a person becomes a coach. Um, you know, there's a, there's a theory that um, the person who becomes the coach is the one who sits at the end of the bench and <laughs> takes notes while everybody else is playing. He's got this mind going. But you really weren't like that. You were, you were a good athlete. You, You started in college at Guard. Um, When did you first start thinking about, you know, maybe coaching would be what I I want to do?
1: It was interesting because I played in the NIT. When the NIT, some teams were turning down the NCAA. Those were the days. (laughs) (laughs) And we lost in triple overtime at that time to Jacksonville. And this talent scout named Howard Garfinkel, who ran the five-star basketball camp, asked me what I was doing. I I was getting ready to sign, I actually did sign later on, a professional contract to play in northern Italy. And I met with him, and he said, how much are they paying you? And back then, it was $19,000 for two years, and that would be quite significant now. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, that's a great contract. And he, he said, I think you should go into coaching. I worked his camp as a uh-huh. counselor and a coach. And I said, "Well, where would I, where would I start?" He said, "We well, start as a graduate assistant." I said, "Well, how much does that pay?" And he said, "Room, board, books, and tuition to work on <laughs> your master's degree." And I knew immediately that was a bad idea. And then I looked in the back room, mm-hmm. and there was a team that also lost uh, in the in, in the NIT, and it was University of Hawaii, and they had back then Hawaii Five O was just on the air, mm-hmm. and and there were all these cheerleaders in there with lays. I was 21 and a college student, and. I, I said, well, how do we approach this man? He said, well, he buys my service. Let's go say hello to him. We said hello to him, and he said he had a graduate assistant. <laughs> and um, I said, do you mind if I write you a letter mm-hmm. and over from Italy for, for the following mm-hmm. year? He said, yes, by all means. Gave me his card. And, and then I-, I had U.B. Brown, Chuck Daly, and I believe it was Dave Gabbett. those three, write a letter for me. And then I... Left getting ready to leave Italy that weekend. It was Monday. I was leaving on a Friday. And he called me back and said that Artie Wilson, his graduate assistant, decided to go to law school. I now have an opening. And all I could think about were those big waves in Hawaii. And and, um, I took the job. I gave up the money, took the job, because I was convinced that I would play four or five years. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have to come back out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. And I actually um, became a full-time assistant two months later. And I left after two years as the head coach, coaching seven players because the NCAA uh, made the university fire the head coach. And they did, did they? And I was (laughs) was 23 as a head coach.
0: So that, that suggests several things about you. First, you must have been a heck of a networker to, by the time you graduated college, have Chuck Daley, Dave Gavitt, and who was the third? Yubi Brown. Yubi Brown, writing letters on your behalf. That's, that's impressive. Um, you know, and second, uh, that you're enough of a go-getter to just walk up to somebody and say, hey, I want to be your graduate assistant. I mean, do you think that most people in coaching have those sort of personality traits?
1: Well, I asked the head coach, I said, how does one get into coaching? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you start at the bottom as a graduate assistant. And I said, do you have any openings at that point? I knew I only had five minutes with him, so right, right. It, he was quite celebrating. But the, the fascinating thing about it is, and I talk about it in Chapter 3, is guys won't, do, young people won't do that today. Mm-hmm. They'll text somebody, right. <laughs> but they will not right. go up to anyone and, and network. And that's such an important thing.
0: Which you figured out very early in life.
1: I did, and, and I realized I had to be a rec- recruiter, a mm-hmm. salesperson. We had a cell to sell the University of Hawaii, or then Syracuse, working mm-hmm. under Jim Beheim, or then Boston University.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, when you when you first start as a coach, when you're a graduate assistant, I, I just want to sort of pursue this line a little bit because, you know, you are one of the most extraordinary coaches uh, in the country and have been for quite a while. And what I'm really interested in trying to pursue is how you get from. Here to there. How do you figure out how to recruit? What kind of kids you want to recruit? What kind of kids you don't want to recruit? How do you figure? You talk a lot in the book about um, technique isn't the right word, but, but the attitude that you want to have with your players, both during the game and in practice. And one of the things that occurred to me as I read the book is that one of the things that seems to me you're saying in the book is I've changed over time that I'm not the same coach I was when I was 30 or even when I was 40. So I was hoping you could just give us a little taste of how you learn
1: along the way. Well, we all started. The reason I could get Chuck Daly or, or UB Brown, we all started at this one basketball camp. Back then, uh, today when you go to recruit in the month of July, you go to Las Vegas. There's 1,000 mm-hmm. teams in one city, and you're following maybe 25 athletes. Back then, all the athletes went to one basketball camp, the five-star camp. And U.B. Brown and Chuck Daly and Bob Knight and all the coaches were there. And I was a young camper as well as then a counselor coach. Was that Sonny Vicaros? No, that was a Howard Garfinkel. Okay. So we, we all knew each other back then. And when you start to get into coaching today, back then it was a lot different. Back then we subscribed to services. The services would evaluate the player. We would go see him. They'd give her a number rating, one to five plus. And then we'd go see him based on his ranking. Today, everything's out, out in the open. Mm-hmm. You know freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. You don't have to travel as much. They're all in one place. So it's a lot easier today because of the technology. Is it, is it healthy? It's healthy in terms of saving money. We can go to one place <laughs> and see 100 athletes instead of flying to 100 different places. Um, is it healthy for the kids? These kids today are so different and the parents are so different that immediately when I'm watching a kid, and there may be 15 other coaches watching them, as soon as the game is over, they will tweet out to America what coaches were there to watch them. And it's it's an amazing thing to, now I don't tweet and I I don't get on the internet and read people's uh, Twitter accounts, I don't do that. Um, don't want to know what they have to say. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, but I, I'm constantly hearing that. Well,
0: uh, actually, one of the things that happened recently was that the um, NCAA wanted to put, a rule, put out some rules that loosened up the amount of contact coaches could have with recruits. And the coaches were actually upset about this because they felt that the recruits. We're going to just be checking how many times did this guy tweet me, how many times did this guy email me, and, and sort of kind of taking a running tally, and if you didn't have these limits, uh, you'd be doing nothing but tweeting and, and emailing uh, recruits all the time.
1: Well, the NCAA does that because <coughs> they do not have the police force to stop coaches, like in Indiana, from mm-hmm. having two phones. One, that when they weren't supposed to mm-hmm. do certain things, they, and then the other phone was used when they were supposed to do things. <laughs> so then the coach got fired from IU, and that was mm-hmm. going around. So the NCAA does not have the police force mm-hmm. to stop all of this, so they've, that's why they've lessened the rules. Now, the coaches don't like it because it's, it's taking too much of their time. Right, right.
0: So we, you're a 23-year-old coach in Hawaii. What's that like, coach? <laughs> <laughs> right, so let me, let me just tell you, when I was 24... And I was basically a secretary. My boss quit and put me in charge of a new service. And I didn't know, just to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was doing. I really didn't. Service went out of business about a year and a half later. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm empathizing.
1: You know, I really didn't, I wasn't ready to be, I, I ended up as the head coach. I really wasn't ready. I just was like a fuller brush salesman. I would leave the Oahu airport, go away for two to three weeks recruiting around the country, come back, you know, 10, 12 hour flights. So I was living on the road just recruiting and, and networking people to come to Hawaii. I was also the head JV coach, and we would play junior colleges. So Hawaii, although it sounds fascinating, <laughs> you know, kids get a chance to visit for 48 hours. Right. That's it. So right. it's a long trip. If you're coming from New York, I signed five players out of New York City, and they had to travel fourteen hours to mm-hmm. get there so it's it's not as glamorous as you may think, but for me i was it was the first time from college to to my married life that I was single mm-hmm. uh, so it, w- it was two fun years it's it's
0: interesting <laughs> It's interesting that you you know uh, you talk mostly about recruiting. What about the actual coaching and sort of how you learn? not X's and O's, and also how you learn how to relate to the players.
1: I learned more of that years later when I became a... I spent two years... Jim Beheim's first two years, I was his assistant coach. Learned all about the zone. Then I became a head coach at 24 years of age at Boston University. Mm -hmm. And the good thing about it is I played college basketball. The reason I went to UMass was because Dr. J was there. Al Skinner and I both Mm -hmm. wanted to go play with Dr. J. He was from the same area in New York. And then... He left and went, went early to the pros for the first time at the ABA. So at that stage, I became, I went on to, to try coaching. And then I, my college coach who was tough to play for a Bobby Knight type disciple, Mm -hmm. he recommended me to be the head coach at BU because he was a great player at that school. Mm -hmm. His name was Jack Lehman. And, um, I told him, Coach, I'm not ready to be a head coach. He said, you're ready. Nobody will pay attention to you at this school. Nobody goes to the games. Nobody covers you. So he said, they won't know whether you're good or not. So, you know, you have the Celtics, the Bruins, the Red Sox, the Patriots, and, and then some of the. and he was right. We averaged about 400 people a game for the first three years. Well, BU's a
0: hockey school. What are you going to do? It was
1: a hockey school. and we, I remember my first Midnight Madness. We tried to get people in because we were going to give them champagne. Uh-huh. We were going to have a champagne toast at midnight. So we, I figured we'd, we'd get a couple thousand people with free champagne. We've got seven alcoholics and nobody else. That was it. <laughs> so, But I learned because I was in my own laboratory. Nobody cared. I got a chance to tinker with the full court press, mm-hmm. motion offenses. I made a lot of mistakes back then, but I learned how to coach a different way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to obviously study film, study film, coach the players. And I just had a a party at the Hall of Fame where most of my Providence kids, Kentucky kids, no Louisville kids, but the, um, I mean, no no current Louisville players. And I was talking to about 13 of my BU players. And they looked old to me. And I said, (laughs) I said, how old are you guys? And they said, 58 and 59. So I said, I was only two years older than you guys when I was coaching them, and I was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you say you had to
1: learn to coach a different way, what do you mean by that? Well, my coach was a half-court, didn't press, didn't run. It was all half-court offenses. And he taught me the fundamentals of the game in a big way. But I wanted to run and press out of my frustrations as a basketball player. I wanted to play in the 90s and high 80s and press, turn around and press people. So I was just choreographing my players by things I've learned in the past, putting them on the court and trying different things, and came mm-hmm. up with a style of play that has been with me since.
0: And part of the reason it's been with you since, I think, is because it's fun. If, if, as long as the athletes are in shape, it, it's a fun
1: style to play. Well, that's the toughest thing. It's, it's finding athletes that can maintain superior conditioning. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of, I, I would venture to say that 50% of our games back then, even at Providence, we were down at halftime. Mm-hmm. And then we would wear them out in the last 10 minutes. So from BU to Providence? Well, from Boston University to assistant coach. To coach. To coach. Knicks, New York Knicks.
0: Oh, well, um, this is sort of jumping ahead because you've had uh, several pro experiences as well as several college experiences. What is the core difference between being a college coach and being a professional coach?
1: In college, you're teaching young people how to do the right things in life, mm-hmm. away from the lines. You're also teaching them all about business. You're teaching them how to pick an agent. You're teaching them how to get to make sure they get a, the proper education. Uh, a lot of the guys don't know what major they want to go into, and you try to sit down with them and, and get their likes and, and try to motivate them to go into certain areas. Most of the guys on our basketball team all think they're going to be NBA players right. and only 10% ever do. So you try to get them focused on the right things and something to fall back on. And, you know, the, the, in college, you're part of their life. You, you go to their weddings, you do. In the pros, it's almost like being the CEO of a company and you're managing people because it's 100 games. They don't like the practice. Uh, and and their egos are, are very large. They make more <laughs> money than you do, quite so often. Most of them do.
0: Yeah. Um, when you talk about um, recruiting and, and the when you what do you look for when you're recruiting? We'll get back to the history in a minute. But what are the kind of person you're looking for? What are the kind of person you don't want?
1: Well, it's interesting because I have a different team right now. We have seven guys or eight guys back from last year's national championship Mm -hmm. team. But we are a totally different team with totally different people. And this team is tough to coach. Last year's two years were very easy to coach. This team is tough to coach. But they have what I like and what I go after. And that's great passion for the game. Great competitors. What I don't like is people that don't want to compete and don't show passion. Now, the flip side of these guys is they, they are very annoying in practice. Very annoying. Because they are constantly talking trash. Constantly. And it drives me up a wall. It really does. And I, and I just had a nice meeting with them. And I, <laughs> and it's, uh, I told them that if, if this continues in tomorrow's practice... That they would regret it for the rest of their life. <laughs> so, uh, they're different. But but I love changing the young men, molding them into something mm-hmm. that can be successful, mm-hmm. and and I just love seeing them succeed in life.
0: Do you feel like you can see what you need to see when they're still in high school and you're recruiting them, or do you feel Not like it's really, a
1: gamble? Because the NCAA limits your contact. I mean, they don't like to speak on the phone. They won't mm-hmm. even answer your calls. They'll text you for two hours but they won't take your call. And then when, believe it or not, when, you t- when, you, when they do take your call, they don't know how to converse. And it's one of the things I, I mentioned in this book, where technology is killing the art of communication.
0: We all have children. We understand this. <laughs> um, one of the reasons, there were two reasons that you never got to play with Dr. J. One is he left as, as a junior. The second is you couldn't play as a freshman. So um, for, as somebody who watches a lot of college ball, I guess I want to know whether you think the elimination of the freshman, the freshman can't play rule, which I think went away in the 70s sometime. Right,
1: 1971, I believe, it right. went away. Um,
0: whether that's been good or bad. And well, it, it gets into a whole bunch of other thoughts yeah. about the one and done and about... You know, who's going to graduate and who's not going to graduate, and do you need a year of college before you're really ready to put in the time that it requires to be a college athlete?
1: Well, I don't want this to sound like I'm taking a shot at the school I worked at up the, up, up the street, because it's not. Because they, they are the masters of the one and done. And if you ask their coach, do you like it, he's, he would absolutely say, no, I don't. He's taken advantage of the rules, and he's the best at it in our business. But I will say this. They're going to college basically for six months. They're getting a six-month education. Now, they're getting a great education on how to deal with the media. They're getting a great ed- um, emotional education on how to deal with a, a college coach. But they're getting an academic education for six months. The second semester, they'll take uh, online courses. They probably will not complete them just to stay in good standing. So it's an awful rule. It's not what college is all about. Now, Jim Delaney from the Big Ten just came out and said that they should let him go out of high school and let the kids who want an education go. Well, the problem is we don't dictate that. Jim doesn't dictate that. The NBA dictates that. That's right. And the NBA does not want high school kids anymore. It takes jobs away from veterans. And you you hear Kobe and Garnett and, and certainly LeBron. But for every one of those guys, here's the problem. Right now, to get into for 15 years ago with the kids I was recruiting, they could not get the core requirements to go to college today. So the one good thing the NCAA has done is they've raised the, raised the standard so high that kids now have to pay attention in high school. The moment you say that you don't have to go to college and you can now go pro, 95% of the kids will say, I don't need to study because I'm going pro.
0: Okay, so um, let me go back to my question. Okay, Don't you think part of this would be solved if freshmen couldn't play? Part of it.
1: Part of it would be solved that way, but what they would do is they would go overseas for a year, play professionally okay, uh, because it's an age thing. But what's wrong with that?
0: So uh, let, me, let me lay out my theory here. I firmly believe that hockey and baseball does it the right way, in the sense that when, you're, when you graduate from high school, you have a legitimate choice whether to go to the minor leagues with hockey or minor leagues with baseball. But with football and men's basketball, you don't have that choice, really, especially football. And so the, when you say, well, maybe they'll go to Europe, I think to myself, if you really don't want to go to college, and you feel like you're being forced to go to college because you want to be an athlete, let him go to Europe.
1: I agree with that hundred percent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't I I think I think it's a sham what's going on right now. Now, because if if you go into college to get an education and you want to participate in athletics, I think that's great. But I think if you go into college for for six months to become a professional athlete, I think it's absurd. Now we as coaches would like to see just what you said go ahead go go now the problem is baseball and football has 3 years if you go to college right. you're staying for 3 years now football's 2 or 3 uh, i think football's 3 that's okay. the deal with the union so that's that's great we would mm-hmm. love to have that but we right. can't get that passed
0: and if you did get that passed it would once again it would be the nba imposing this i mean the truth is the ncaa has nothing to do with it whatsoever.
1: No, it's we're, we're, mm-hmm. the NCAA has, has very little power when dealing with the NBA because the NBA does not care about the NCAA at all. <laughs> they say they do on the surface, but the NBA has to debate and argue with the players' union. And right. the players' union in the NBA is run by agents. Right.
0: So your first, um, your first trip to the Final Four... Was at my home was when you were coaching in my hometown, Providence. And um, as somebody who comes from Providence, I can tell you that that was a miracle year, and we never expected that team to make to be in the final four. And um, let us, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what that first experience was like, and why, how you got a team of overachievers. I mean, they really only had one star. Um, where, get them to where they got.
1: Well, I'm laughing when you said one star because I met, I sat there at Providence and watched Providence play Georgetown at Madison Square Garden in Joe Mullaney's last coach game. And three, they had three good players on that team, Ray Knight, uh, another guy from D.C. There were three good players. The rest of the team was awful. And they were in last place since the inception of the Big East. Since Dave Gavitt formed the league... Providence and Seton Hall were always in dead last place. So I'm watching with Fuzzy Levain and Dick McGuire, two of the scouts of the Knicks. I was the assistant coach. And as I'm watching the game, they said to me, you can't take this job. You'll bury your career. Mm -hmm. He said, this is one of the worst teams we've ever laid our eyes on. (laughs) And I said, it's worse, Dick, to Dick McGuire. He said, because the only three good guys are leaving. There's nobody returning that averages 10 points or more. So I said, I've got you guys. And I meet Lou Lamarillo on Ab- the, at the Abbey Tavern on 26th Street. And that, he was the athletic director at the time. Providence College. And I grew up one street from the Abbey Tavern. So I knew it real well. And I'm preparing on the taxi cab ride, the short taxi cab ride. On, I'm preparing what to say to Lou. Thank you very much. But I can't take this job because I have a strong desire to be a, a head coach in the pros. So I'm all set. I told my friends, look, I'll meet you in 15 minutes. It's all it's going to take to say this. <laughs> So I go in and Lou says he has his head down. He said, "Look, I'm a hockey coach. My name's Lou Lambe." I said, "I know Lou." He said, um, "Look, I just want to let you know. It's I, I know you watched something that was basically pathetic, but it's been going on for seven straight years, and we're going to change it tonight. We're hiring you. You're the guy to change around our fortune." And just like that, I looked at him and I took the job. <laughs> it took it took ten seconds of patronizing me, and I took the job. <laughs> No money talk, nothing. And um, so now we uh, fast it to the spring, and I'm meeting with the team. And you said we had one player, and w- w- you and I know who that player is. And So all I'm thinking about to myself is, if I could just get three or four guys to transfer, I will get the scholarships f- for guys that can play in the mm-hmm. Big East. The first guy to walk in is the one guy who has to transfer. He's played... Four minutes as a freshman, four minutes as a sophomore. He's averaging three points a game. He waddles in. His name was Billy Donovan. He waddles in. He's 5'11 and a half, 6 foot, 191 pounds. And I said, Billy, you look out of shape. He said, well, coach, I didn't play much. And if you're a sub in Joe Mullaney's system, coach Mullaney's system, he said, you don't, you sit on the sidelines the whole day. So I I put on weight. I said, yeah, you put on substantial weight. And and, um, he said, coach, I'd like to transfer. I said, oh, this is my first guy I'm meeting. This is awesome. And I said, Billy, are you sure, son? You sure? He said, no, I'm definitely sure. Where would you like to go? He says, Fairfield or Northeastern. I said, good. I know both coaches very well. Let me meet with the rest of the guys. Come back at 6 o'clock. This is around 3 o'clock. So I call up Jim Calhoun from Northeastern. Jim, I've got a Big East backcourt player for you. <laughs> He said, What's his name? Wants a transfer. I said, Billy Donovan. He said, From St. Agnes? I said, Yeah, can't play for us. We have much better basketball players than him. <laughs> I call up Terry O'Connor, Fairfield. Terry, good news. Got a big East backcourt player. I know you need backcourt help. Who do you have, Rick? I've got Billy Donovan from St. Agnes. Rick, he can't play for us. <laughs> Billy waddles back in at six o'clock and um, sits down. And he says, Coach, which school wanted me more? And he was such a nice kid. <laughs> I said, Billy, I really was unable to get through the both guys, but let me ask you a question. Do you like the school socially? I do, Coach. Do you like it scholastically? He said, I'm doing okay. I said, I took him in the gym. You know the old alumni hall? Yeah, I know. Right across the hall. And we played some basketball, and I took him through some things. And I said, Billy, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get down to 160 pounds, and then we'll change it into muscle. I want you to work on the following drills. I put him through about an hour of drills. And then I want you to come back after Labor Day, in great shape, and each, once a week I want you to tell me how you're perfecting these drills, because I gave him goals with each mm-hmm. drill. He comes back, he looks awesome, we bulk up his body a little bit to like 165, and um, we go to the NIT, and he's the first sub off the bench, and he looks great. He comes back, and at the end of the year, he's really playing well. I used to play back then, and I would beat him, that first day I took him in the gym, I would beat him 12-0, 12-0, 12-1. Mm. The only reason I let him score the third game was I felt sorry for (laughs) him. Now I take him back to the gym at the end of the year, and he's beating me consistently. So I made him the following year. I said, look, we're going to put you in the cover of the game program and probably the back of the press guide. I said, I want you to put this on. He said, Coach, that's embarrassing. I said, no, I want you to do it. I'll tell you why. Cowboy hat, boots, spurs, (laughs) guns and holsters. And a little handkerchief around his neck. He said, Coach, this is really embarrassing. I said, no. I said, you'll understand why. The caption read, Billy the Kid, the fastest gun in the East. (laughs) And many years later, his wife sent us for his 40th birthday. Billy's a kid no longer come to his 40th birthday party. Well, that young man that year, in the second season, remember, seven straight years in last place, that young man was the most dominant point guard in the country. And right here in Louisville, Georgetown who beat us, if you remember, we hit that shot at the buzzer for the first time beating Georgetown uh, in, in, at Providence uh, Civic Center. And John Thompson, during the game, we blocked, Jacek Duda blocked the kid's shot, this 6'11 uh, Polish player, blocked uh, Perry McDonald's shot on the backboard. All of a sudden, I have this bunch of altar boys, and John Thompson is standing at half court, <laughs> cursing at me. And I said to my assistant, who is he yelling at? Because he's a Providence College graduate. He said, he's yelling at you. So I walked down. I was very young. I walked down. I said, what's up, Big John? I'll tell you what's up. You guys are the dirtiest bunch of so-and-sos I've ever coached against in my life. Well, I, I, I cracked a smile and laughed. I thought he was kidding because it's a Providence College. I started laughing. When I laughed, he went after me like you wouldn't believe. Well, you know, there's 13,000 people. there. 10,000 are Italian. And so I had a... I had a... I you, had, stood you had a there, quorum. I stood there at his navel, and I said, I went right back at him. And uh, So we won the buzzer. He put his arm around me, and he said, I want to tell you as a Providence College alum how proud I am of what you're doing with the team. But he said, you'll be playing senior night at Georgetown, and we will crush you. That's, he used those <laughs> words. He beat us 32 points, beat us in the semifinals in the Garden by 31 points, and... With the final four at stake, who do we have to play? The only team we can't beat but Georgetown. That's right. Here at Freedom Hall, and the fascinating thing, it was never a game. We were, we were up the entire game by 20 points, and uh, Billy the Kid Donovan, he believed he was Billy the Kid. He made himself into Billy the Kid, and now he's a back-to-back championship coach at Florida. Th- that's right.
0: Why do you think so many of your players are not coaches?
1: Well, it's really, it's an extraordinary number. Yeah, the best story I have is a young man at Kentucky who writes me a letter. He hears me speak at that five-star basketball camp when I was considerably older, and he says, I want to be a manager, and I want to learn how to coach. A lot of my managers go into coaching, most of them high school coaching. And he said, I want to learn your system. I wrote him back, and I said, look, son, you're from New Jersey. At the University of Kentucky, 95% of the student bodies from the state, they talk different. Why don't you apply to Villanova, Seton Hall, or Rutgers? And um, you'd be a duck out of water here in Kentucky. He he wrote me back and said, no, I really want to do it. So I hired him as one of 10 managers. He worked for me for four years around the clock, did everything I asked from the bottom, and um, then became a graduate assistant like me. Mm -hmm. Then he traveled with me with the Celtics, became assistant video coordinator. And today, he's Frank Vogel, the head coach of the Indiana Pacers. So these type of stories, Brett Brown, who played for me at Mm -hmm. BU, is the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers.
0: But this is not just osmosis. I mean, you are, at some level, knowing that this guy wants to be a coach, showing him things, are you not? I mean, or you expect them to just pick it up in the room. No,
1: you you explain your system Mm -hmm. to them. They pick up your system. And then if you're successful, colleges want to hire people from our system because it's entertaining it's right. an entertaining style and that's what it's all about today marketing is a big key and i always tell guys look i don't hire assistant coaches i hire future head coaches so your goal is to be a head coach i want you to impact every practice as if you were a head coach and i've had great guys great guys
0: you told lou lamorello that you had a burning desire to be a professional coach um, Was that a little bit like Woody Allen wanting to do uh, non-funny movies?
1: Actually, that was the plan. I never got to it because Lou said he was going to change everything and hire me, so I never got to my speech.
0: Well, I happen to be from Providence, and I happen to remember distinctly that you left our friars to go to the New York Knicks as the head coach. So what was that experience like? Well,
1: they came after me at the end of April, and I turned it down. I signed a long-term contract at Providence College after that. So it was strange, the strangest thing I've ever been through in my life. Because Lou's a tough guy, one of the toughest people I've ever encountered in my life. Lou comes to me and says, I got a call, this was mid-June, from Jack Dillard and Nick's, they want to speak to you again. I said, Lou, I just signed an eight-year contract. He said, I spoke to Father Cunningham, they will let you out. I said, why would you let me out? And he's, <laughs> He didn't tell me why. He said, one week later, after I interviewed, Lou took the general manager and president of the New Jersey Devils. Uh He knew he was leaving. Uh He didn't feel in good conscience that he could hold me to that contract because Mm -hmm. he just signed a contract with me. So he convinced Father Cunningham of that, and we both left together.
0: And what was it like coaching the Knicks versus, you know, before it was Providence and after it was Kentucky?
1: The Knicks was a great experience for me because I grew up on 26th Street. Mm -hmm. It was always the team I rooted for. It was a fabulous experience. And we went from 24 wins to 38, 52. I coached all four-year guys, uh, Mark Jackson with St. John's, Mm -hmm. Patrick Ewing with the Knicks, Charles Oakley. I had all college graduates. Although they were young... They were great to coach. We had terrific success.
0: Interesting that you would make that distinction about having uh, four-year guys. I mean, why did, Why did you feel like that was important? Because when
1: I went to the Celtics, I did not have that. I had mm-hmm. very immature guys who were into totally different things. You know, Mark Jackson and Patrick Ewing, they were very mature men. Uh, one played for John Thompson, the other played for Lou second. They were emotionally at a good place, Mm -hmm. and you could coach them and teach them. The guys that I was taking over at the Celtics did not have the talent of those young men, um, but they were younger. They were younger, they were more immature. Although in your
0: book, uh, to your your everlasting credit, you lay the blame for the failure (coughs) of your experience at the Celtics on yourself. And you basically say um, that the contract weighed you down, the large contract weighed you down, but also that you weren't thinking about the job in the right way and that that hurt you.
1: It did. I was a coach. I was also the president of the team. That's right. and I should not have been.
0: Well, you traded Chauncey Billups after nine games, for Christ's sake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to let you in know a secret. Do you know who told me I had to be president Mm-mm. or you can't take the job? Red Auerbach? No, he was no. the one I was... Uh-uh. With. Dave Gavitt. Ah. Dave told me you have to do it because you, you're, you're going to take over one of the most difficult jobs you've ever seen. And they, only, they beat the uh, franchise down mm-hmm. to 15 wins to get Tim Duncan right. and then didn't in get the lottery. That's right. And so it's, my fate was sort of sealed mm-hmm. because I wasn't, a, I wasn't a good negotiator to, to try and make trades. I was into coaching right. and I was trying to do that job and I was more into coaching. I didn't have the experience to do that job.
0: Well, that's right. And also, you never really know who's going to make a good general manager versus... Danny Ainge has turned out to be a terrific general manager. Who would have ever expected that? And we had,
1: believe it or not, we had a general manager Mm -hmm. who today's with Memphis and doing a great job. Mm -hmm. And he did 90% of the work. I had the final say. But when you're over the salary cap, basically what happens, you're trading good players for good players, average players for average players. You never get better when you're over the salary cap, unless you pull off a Garnett type mm-hmm. trade, and, and that was a brilliant trade. So, uh, should we
0: just skip over Kentucky entirely? <laughs> <laughs> Greatest game
1: ever played? <laughs> you know, Kentucky for me, I, I say this all the time, it was Camelot. I was the only coach to ever coach at Kentucky not to have a bad day and leave having a great year. We were runner-ups. We lost Arizona. Uh, Adolph Rupp tried to coach when he was uh, way past his prime and wanted to hold on, and and they wouldn't let him hold on. Joe B. Hall left because, uh, oh, it was a a a lot of problems at that point in time. Eddie Sutton got fired. Um, Billy Gillespie gets fired. Program's in trouble. Yeah, so I, I came in at the right time and left at the right time in terms of, Eight great years, mm-hmm. never a problem. Um, it was just Camelot. Now, the coach right now is having great success, and I hope he has the same feelings toward the university that I have, because I, I have great feelings for the University of Kentucky because I had eight great years. They treated me great. Now, they no longer treat me great, but they did it right <laughs>
0: Um And before we get in, I want to ask you, sort uh, series of uh, sort of policy questions about college, college sports. But before we do that, um, just talk a little bit about this last year. And um, I, it was a great run. And um, it, it was, you know, you watch that team, and it was, they were fun to watch, and they were great athletes, and there was a lot of enthusiasm. And by God, they won the whole thing.
1: You so, know, the last three years for me was as much fun in coaching and three years ago, I had a walk-on who was named Elijah Justice, who was playing a lot of minutes. The great kids. And we got upset by Moorhead State. And Moorhead State, not known to our fans, had a player who was today one of the best rebounders in the NBA, Kenneth Fareed. A great player. Much better than any player we had. And he dominated the games on the backboard. He's dominating the NBA right now. Mm-hmm. So I go to see my son, we win 25 games, we get knocked out, I'm disappointed, but we had a great year. Mm -hmm. I thought that team overachieved really well. And uh, when I got home, my son Michael, I I don't listen to call-in shows, I don't read blogs, I don't go on the internet, Uh, I focus in on my job. uh, Because if I hear nine people say good things and one people say something, I wanna fight that person. So I (laughs) I don't listen to him. So he says to me, he said, boy dad, They're really killing you all over the internet and on shows. I said, what are they killing me about? Uh, I said, our best player broke his ankle. With eight minutes to go, we're up four. We're going to win that game. We'll have a great shot of winning the game. And Preston Knowles breaks his ankle. They said, Dad, you're too old, and you've lost your touch. (laughs) Uh, And I I got really upset. And I said, you know what? It's probably time to leave. Because it was, I think, uh, 10 years or 11 years And sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it's time. So I met with an agent and I decided he could get me pro and college basketball. And I was going to go into broadcasting. I thought it would be a good time. Went home to my wife and she says, How can you lose? How can you leave after losing the first round of the tournament? (laughs) I said, We went to the NCAA and we didn't go to the NIT. We won 25 games. She said, You can't leave. She said, I know you better than anyone. You wake up in the morning. You can't wait to get to the office. You go to bed at night, on the phone to recruits. You'll miss it terribly. You can't go. So I thought about it, thought about it. spoke to a few other people, and, and I agreed. And I really did want to take this job in broadcasting. Mm-hmm. But think about it. If, if you don't listen uh, to the woman in your life, what happens? Back-to-back Final Fours, back-to-back Big East Championships, the last game played in the Garden, and a national championship. <laughs> So the moral of the story is when you still have great passion, and if you're going to coach today, look, you're a brilliant writer, but you can't pay attention to the criticism because mm-hmm. then you, you can't utilize your talents the best way. You know, you can listen to it and you could hear it and maybe objectively like I, I've done in the past I said, you know what, that's a bad article about me, but half of that's true. I agree with that writer. So I didn't do a good job there. So you can't do it that way. You really have to stay focused. You have to have laser-sharp focus on what takes place between the lines, and you can't deviate from that.
0: You know, uh, Louisville is no longer in the Big East, as you well know. Um, The Big East, uh, although it's been reconstituted, essentially got divvied up uh, in in what what they like to call conference realignment. What is your view about conference realignment and all the machinations that have gone on this past year as everybody's trying to hook up with other people, with other schools, with other leagues, um, to maximize football revenue, which is really what's happening?
1: Well, I have a gigantic Big East bias. So it meant so much to me to win that last game at Madison Square Garden, personally. But I thought the Big East was the greatest basketball conference ever formed. Now, it may even be better because they've taken Syracuse, Pittsburgh, Notre Dame, and Louisville, and combining with the ACC. It it upset me in the beginning very much because we're all catering to football. As a basketball coach, that bothered me. That being said, I understand it's a business. I understand it's about money. But look at this. West Virginia right now, the closest school is 800 miles away in the Big 12. So they have to go from Morgantown an hour on a bus to Pittsburgh Airport, wait at the airport. Now, the football and basketball schools charter, but they get home at 4 in the morning on every road trip. What about the women's soccer team? What about the the women's lacrosse team? They have to take three different connections to Ames, Iowa, Manhattan, Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, and Lubbock, Texas. It's impossible, all because of football and money. So I would rather, and, and you're talking about schools with very large endowments. You know, very large endowments, and, and they're doing this. So it, to me, it's, it's an unfair thing that everybody's doing that. We haven't done it. Now, we're going in the ACC, which is fabulous, because a lot of our sports, we're dominating the Big East, like women's volleyball, mm-hmm. men's baseball. The, the competition is so much better away from basketball by, by being in the ACC, especially football.
0: That's true. But um, you know, there's a lot of uh, great rivalries that are going to cease to exist, which is which I think is. It's a sad. shame,
1: and, and right now, you know, if somebody says Nebraska, you, you think of you don't think of Nebraska being in a Big Ten. Right. So everything has changed, and and certainly I don't necessarily say it's changed for the better, but the football is like NASCAR. It is getting, it has gotten so popular, so big, but it hasn't caught on worldwide like basketball, and golf, and some of the other sports. But here in the United States, football is so big that you understand it.
0: Well, uh, as you said, it has become a business, it is a business, and a lot of it's about the money. Why shouldn't the players get some of it?
1: <laughs> I think they should. I don't know how they, they get it. That's the, the problem is this. Do we say that we've been the number one revenue producer in college basketball 11 straight years according to Forbes. We dwarf our nearest competitor, North Carolina, by close to $20 million. So should and you we, play
0: in a $285 million stadium, right? I mean, think three hundred million. million. The
1: young? So, should we be able to pay our players $10,000 each and Providence College gets $4,000 each? How do we do it, is what I'm saying. I'm all for it. Uh, I definitely feel we should start with taking care of the families, making sure when the NCAA tournament comes about that they get round-trip transportation to where they're from, they get hotel lodging, food per That Some of my family members of Peyton Siva drove to, to the NCAA tournament back here, so driving from Seattle. So it's unfair for them not to get transportation. I think that's in the works. I just don't know. I'm in favor of paying the players. I just don't know how you do it. How do you not pay, like women's volleyball is very big at Louisville, mm-hmm. but they don't, they're not revenue producing. How do, how do we not, do we not pay them? Do we say it's just revenue producing sports?
0: Well, I actually think the answer to that question is yes, because I think um, they, are, they are on the campus for the purpose of generating revenue for the university. I mean, that, you know, and, and the, the truth is they call them student athletes, but they're really athlete students.
1: I agree with that. And, and I would say this. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't know how to do it. If revenue, See, we, we are a gigantic revenue producer, but right now, there are some schools in major conferences that the only, the only reason they produce revenue is because they're getting the bull money, they're getting the money from the Georgetown's and the Syracuse's. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think it's, if we can put it to a if each athlete gets 5,000 dollars per semester, mm-hmm. I think that's great. I think that can be done, uh, except the NCAA will fight us, and I think someday, I don't know if it's going to be in our lifetime. I think certain conferences will break away from the NCAA. Wow. I'm just not sure they're going to do. And the most likely one is the, probably the SEC, the SEC, because they're the most dominant in football.)
0: Um, Of course, there's also the O'Bannon case going on. Um, And uh, for those who don't know, uh, it's a a case about whether um, former college athletes have the right to their own likenesses, um, as opposed to having their likenesses sold to video games for free. Um, It seems to me that that case, if the plaintiffs won, could give us an Olympic-type situation where athletes wouldn't necessarily get paid a salary, but they would be allowed to do endorsements, get money from licensing fees, marketing, and and all that sort of thing. I'm assuming that you would be in favor of that as well. Oh, I'm in favor.
1: Look at Johnny Menzel. He's the classic example. He's selling his autograph. Now, uh, whether he got paid or not, he's a very, very very nice person to go around and do these things for free. Okay? (laughs) Very nice person. So, so now, he sells it, and the NCAA takes a long time to see what he did, and they come in, they give him a half a game suspension. So I believe that Johnny Manziel should be able to go get paid to sign his autograph. The problem is, now here comes Joe Booster, and Joe Booster says, Johnny, uh, we, when you come to school here, when you do your autograph, I'm going to pay 15000 for your autograph. So that's the problem. How how you regulate that uh, and, you know, what's the autograph worth? Okay, everybody now pays, signs up, and you pay $50 to get his autograph. That's the tough part about it is how do you keep – they always find a way to cheat.
0: Right. Boosters is a tough problem. But I I always – I've thought that one way to do something about the booster problem is to say to the boosters – okay, boosters, we're going we're gonna to collect money from you, which we're going to use to pay the players. So hopefully you lose your incentive to give people money under the table, because we're asking you to give money over the table.
1: I mean... And probably get a tax deduction if you give it to the universal. Well, of course. <laughs> Not anymore, <laughs> yeah. but it used to be. <laughs> you know, um,
0: there's another issue uh, in addition to the money issue, and that, and that has to do with fairness and um, whether the bureaucracy in in Indianapolis, you know, the NCAA bureaucracy um, is on the same side as the players. There's a story in your book um, that I'd like you to tell um, about a kid named Muhammad Lasege, I think his last name is, who all he wanted to do was play college basketball and all the NCAA wanted to do was tell him he couldn't for reasons that I think are mind-boggling. You want to just tell that story a little bit?
1: Well, Denny Crum recruited him, Mm -hmm. and when I came, I met him he was a delightful young man, and most of the African kids, everyone I met, is so much into their education. They're into basketball, but the opposite of the Americans. Total opposite. This kid wanted his education, and he wanted to play basketball. He was not a professional basketball player. He was, would be a good, sound college player. I think he wound up going to Harvard Business School. I believe he did. Um, so he came in, and he apparently, when he was traveling, took some money to travel from one place to another place.
0: Well, Wait, wait, he's missing the best part. The kid's 16 years old. He's in Africa. He wants to go to America. Somehow, these Russians get their hands on him. He, he winds up in Russia. He signs documents that he doesn't even understand. Right? He finally breaks free of the Russians. He comes to America. He comes to the University of Louisville. All he wants to do is play basketball. And the NCAA rules that he's been a professional, therefore, he can never play college ball.
1: That's yep. what happened. And, and, and I worked him out for a year. He was just the nicest young man that really cared about his education. And it, it's, it's sort of, it, the biggest problem the NCAA has is they don't have enough people that would immediately come in, interview this young man, understand he wants, wants that education. They just, they'll make a rule and they've got to stick by the rule they they don't investigate it because there's not enough of them. That's the problem. There's well, see,
0: I, my own view is it's a lack of compassion and common sense. But, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, yeah.
0: I, I said that, not him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: they won't investigate you, though. <laughs> Actually, they've tried.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> um, when your kids get in trouble with the NCAA, not that it ever happens that often, how do you stand by them? It's a very difficult
1: situation. Well, fortunately for us, we haven't had the problem yet, but I'm sure someday it will happen. But, you know, it's, it's, the NCAA has gotten better in the last two years than, than 33 of my other years. They have gotten better. They've loosened up the, the rule book. They're listening more. Mm-hmm. And I think they realize in the back of their minds that, look, just like we never expected the Big East, who would have ever expected Boston College to leave the Big East? Right. It, it, it blindsided everybody. Mm-hmm. It blindsided Mike Tranghese. And he was very upset about it. So the NCAA had better look at some of these schools breaking away. Right. And before it's too late, like we got blindsided in the Big East those people are going to realize that, listen, we can make more money right. by being outside of the NCAA. So sooner or later, the college is going to say, you know, let's break away from this and we'll have our own rules. So the, I think they're, they're going to get wise to that. And I think they're going to get better at that, especially with there's so many people like yourself that think the players should get paid.
0: You know, the world world really has changed in terms of people's attitudes uh, towards the NCAA. The the, the acceptance that they're on the right side and the good guys all the time, which would have existed 10 years ago, is gone. And here's another example. It's not really an NCAA example, but when Kevin Weir had that horrible uh, injury, uh, one of the things that struck me was how much commentary was around how will the University of Louisville treat him? Down the line, if he can't play, I I I know I know that you would do the right thing by him. There's not, there's not any question, and the university would too. But there's so much in the air about you know schools will cut kids who can't who can't cut it anymore, or or they get injured and they get tossed off the team and so on and so forth. And I think one of the corrosive things that's happened is that there's a there's a cynicism in the public about college sports that
1: didn't used to exist. Do you do you agree with that? You think I'm I think there's a cynicism, period, about about the political arena, about mm-hmm. the sports arena. I think there's a lot of cynical people out there right now that just look at politicians today and if if you look at our government today, you, you'd be very cynical as well. Right right. If if you look at the lawyers today, you'd be cynical about lawyers. You'd be cynical about doctors. That's my job.
0: <laughs> Um, well, we're going we're gonna to close uh, being uncynical. Um, uh, you know, coaches play such an important role in the lives of their athletes and their mentors and their tutors and their... their uh, p- kids look up to their coaches and, and, and want to be like them often. And um, somebody gave me, before I came on here... Um, a piece of writing by Pat Conroy, who I believe is visiting here very, very soon, and this is um, uh, to a coach from his sister, and I'm just going to read you one quick paragraph. Dear Coach, I was thinking about what you teach your boys, what language you can use for the love of boys driven by your voice across the grass you mowed yourself. When I saw you and your team win the first game, all the magic of sport came to me silver voice like whistles. There are no words to describe how beautifully you look, delivering urgent messages to quarterbacks, signaling for timeouts, pacing the green, unnaturally lit sidelines, loved by your sister for your unimaginable love of play, for the soft, gauzy, immensity of your love for all the boys and all the games of the world. Boy, I sure wish I could write like that. Thank you very much, Rick Pitino. Thank you.